Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. A quick note before we get to this week's guest, Shazia Sikander. Last Friday, we became aware of some problems at Apple Podcasts. Some of our Apple Podcast subscribers may not have had our program with Stephanie Sihuko and Kate Wilson automatically pushed to their devices. And a smaller number of you may not have had last week's program with Judy Mann on her exhibition Paintings on Stone in St. Louis and with Nicholas Galanin pushed to your devices. We contacted Apple Podcasts last Friday. They fixed the problem in just a couple hours and we're back to normal. But if you missed those shows, you may want to go back and get them. They were pretty terrific. This weekend, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston opens Shazia Sikander Extraordinary Realities, a survey of the first 15 years of Sikander's career, from roughly the mid to late 1980s until the early 2000s. It was curated by Jan Howard and Marnie Kindness, and it was organized for the Museum of Fine Arts Houston by Dina M. Woodall. The exhibition will remain on view through June 5th, when it will travel to the RISD Museum in Providence, Rhode Island. The RISD Museum and Hermer have published an outstanding book of the same title in association with the exhibition. It was edited by Sadia Abbas and Jan Howard. IndieBound and Amazon each offer it for about $45. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Sikander came to prominence by melding Indo-Persian manuscript painting traditions with contemporary life in issues such as feminism and cultural identity. Among the dozens of museums that have presented solo shows of her work are the Perez Art Museum in Miami, twice, the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tokyo. Quick reminder that Spotify now allows you to give us a five-star rating so that hopefully more people will be able to find the show on their service. Five stars, fewer means you don't like us. Thanks very much. Shazia Sikander, after the break. Coming to the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth on April 1st, Focus, Jamal Cyrus. Houston-based artist Jamal Cyrus examines forgotten, ignored, or fragmentary accounts of Black American culture. He raises clear questions about official history, what is overlooked and why, and the biases held by those writing and interpreting it. Cyrus uses a range of materials, including musical equipment, food, plant life, and used clothing, but transforms them into densely layered objects that refer to Southern material culture. For this exhibition, which is on view through June 26th, Cyrus made new sculptures, drawings, and assemblages that center on what the artist calls sonic territory, the oral and musical landscape of a region, in this case, the Trinity River Basin. The new work specifically examines the contributions of Fort Worthian, multi-readist, and composer Julius Hemphill. Exploring the area's landscapes, natural and man-made, Cyrus's site-specific exhibition dives into the poetic layers, histories, and mythologies comprising this large area, bifurcated and shaped by the Trinity River. Jamal Cyrus at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, April 1st through June 26th. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Virtual Realities, the Art of M.C. Escher from the Michael S. Sachs Collection. The world premiere of the most extensive Escher collection ever held is now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Discover the connection between math and art through Escher's mind-bending puzzles. This special exhibition is on view for a limited time. Get your tickets at mfah.org slash mcescher. Getty invites you to a visual celebration of Imogen Cunningham, one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. On view at the Getty Center through June 12, 2022, Imogen Cunningham, a retrospective, brings together nearly 200 of the artist's insightful portraits, elegant flower and plant studies, poignant street pictures, and groundbreaking nudes. Join Getty for the first major retrospective of her work in the United States in more than 35 years and discover how this extraordinary artist pushed boundaries for both women and photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. 
The exhibition follows a sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinan, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Explore the first U.S. museum retrospective of the pioneering artist Harry Bertoia at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See more than 100 works of sculpture, design, and jewelry that influenced culture, both at the mid-century and now. In complement to the exhibition, don't miss an installation from pioneering sound artist Olivia Block, which utilizes Bertoia's sound sculptures. Learn more and get your tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Shazia Sikander, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. The first work in the book that accompanies this show is titled The Scrolls. It was your, (laughs) this is wild to me. This was your undergraduate thesis. Let's not talk about my undergraduate thesis, but I think it's pretty rare for an artist's undergraduate thesis to end up being the cornerstone on which a significant career is built. But I think yours was, and I think you've also foregrounded the importance of the scroll to your career. Has your relationship with that early work made in your early 20s always been as strong as it is now in 2022 when you're no longer in your early 20s? Or have you kind of come around to that early work and come to embrace it more and more as the years have gone on? It's been both. It's been a distancing because um, obviously because it was like an early work, but I think over time, its significance has also paralleled like an incredible blooming of contemporary miniature at the National College of Art in Lahore, Pakistan, right, where my thesis at that time in the late 80s, it sort of broke open the mold for creating a contemporary take on a very predominantly historical or traditional engagement with that genre. So fast forward all these years, it has almost become single-handedly like a export of Pakistani art, and which, which itself is problematic, right? But it has literally led to, the, to that type of a iconic kind of uh, visual, yeah, like space where it's a nationalistic art form. One of the things you do in your practices is moves and symbols and ideas that pop up in 1995. We'll come back 10 years later. Do you still look at and pull things from that early work into your practice even now? I've had great opportunities to really engage with the work from the interest of others so I had a conversation with uh, Saad Yabaz, who also edited the book attached, uh, the Extraordinary Realities book. And she has also written a fiction, The Empty Room. And we had a really lively conversation about her novel and the parallels with the scroll. Because the novel is also, I think, about a female painter at a very specific political time in Karachi, Pakistan. But some of the things naturally were kind of similarities that I was engaged with in terms of like the domestic space within a certain generation in Pakistan, the social political environment of the military dictatorship and how some of those nuances are present in her interpreting the scroll and wanting to have a conversation. So yes, so th- that was that was very lively and quite separate, but it's happening so much later, right? So, so there's been many opportunities that have allowed me to open up that work and see it for what it is and not necessarily anchored as the thesis for the BFA. <laughs> 
I don't want to spend a ton of time on your engagements with miniature painting because I feel that that's way too much of what people ask you about. But but I do want to ask ask this. You have, over the course of now a 30-something, your career, made it a point to, every few years, address and update the way in which you address miniature painting within your oeuvre. Just as a partial timeline, for example, in 2016, you did a video animation for the Philly Museum titled Disruption is Rapture, which is an address of miniature painting. Five years before that, you made a work called, my pronunciation here is going to be poor, I apologize, Faiz's Gift. A couple years before that, there was Galib's Circle and, and so on. Is my read of that fair, that you've made a point, whatever else you've been working on, to to dip into the miniature tradition? I would say that Disruption as Rapture, the film, is a, is a more precise example of this point because that is actual manuscript that the Philadelphia Art Museum owns. It's called the Rose Garden of Love or Gulsune Ishk. And they usually these manuscripts, you know, a majority of the time they have been dispersed. So each different museums, institutions, private collections may have a page or two, but rarely does the full manuscript exist in its entirety. So this was a big thing that they had one and they were conserving it. So it was all sort of unbound and I had access to all the different 90 plus images. And they were wanting to find a fresh way of putting it in their historical South Asian art galleries. And at that time, I was invited to see if there was a way to make a film or, you know, have a contemporary take on this very precise object. So that opportunity and then my interest in it was a problem to be solved. So at that time, I think the animated piece itself and inviting other the lyricist as well as the composer I worked with, all of that really allows like a, a complete fresh interpretation of, of what a manuscript could be, as well as how like collaborative work in my recent decade or so has been a prominent practice of mine as well. So that I think is more precise. The other uh, works that you cited are just part of like uh, drawings that I've been working over for, for a long time. So large scale drawings are a fluid kind of natural way of working between small notebook page works as well as 10 nine foot pieces that are still on paper. And I think that has been ongoing. So it's tied as that a broader understanding of the manuscript tradition is there in general in my practice, but those works are not necessarily exactly tied to the manuscript. They reference poets, Fazam Faz and Khalib, of course, the main truth in poetry is another sort of tool throughout my practice, kind of almost thinking like making, you know, each painting I make is often, I think of it as a poem. We are going to talk about both scale and poetry as we go along here, for sure. Like a lot of artists of your generation, so you're going through MFA programs in the 90s, I guess is the way I'm thinking of defining generation in this context. You're interested in systems, you know, which is a really big idea. And I, I presume that some of that, not speaking of you personally, but of lots of artists emerging from the 1990s being interested in systems or reacting against New York's interest in neo-expressionism, which artists kind of of your generation have often been pretty dismissive of as being kind of a hollow formalism, which is probably how I think of it too, but that's neither here nor there. So your interest in systems, first, do you think that's fair? Are you interested in systems? Were you interested in systems? <laughs> Of course, I think I, I am interested in language. First, uh, I'm also interested in a broader system, which is stepping outside of the Western canon of Western painting. So I'm interested in how other vernaculars that don't sit comfortably within the Western painting canon, where do they fit? How do you engage with those worlds as well? And for me, that's not a given just because 
I'm coming from, I was born or was an adult in Pakistan. It's about the archives that exist in Western institutions because of the long drawn colonial imperial histories. So that excavating that or using that as a fodder and then trying to understand, you know, how how those systems have always been in conversation over time, over history. It's not something happening just now. Putting it that way brings me to a work from, I think, 1999 titled Red Riding Hood. So here, here, here's a work that, like, even if you don't know the title of the work, even if you're not looking at the title plate on a wall, the work is obviously about what, in the, in the American or European, American or German to American transcontinental tradition, you know, are called fairy tales. And, and, and your Red Riding Hood kind of suggests that no, or emphasizes that no one culture has, you know, this is kind of a transcultural, trans, transcontinental form. Yeah, because, you know, because I guess like misogyny <laughs> is transcultural, transnational. And, and so are children's it's stories. The darkness and the misogyny <laughs> of fairy tales, right? <laughs> and, you know, cultures always need stories to tell their children. And so this is a work by referring to stories rather than telling a story, kind of univer- universalizes the thing. And, it, and, and when I've, I mean, this is probably my favorite work of yours. It, 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 it reminds me that narrative is a system that underlies a lot. For me, an, an exploration of how narrative works as a system, and there are lots of things in this painting that I think will come up as we talk. One of the symbols that maybe, well, probably not for the first time, but er, for an early time in your career you introduce is, is a winged animal, which for me is a griffin because my high school mascot was a griffin, <laughs> but I'm sure it's called different things in different places. It, it's almost kind of a, a semiotic for you or a, a, a sign or a symbol that, that recurs often in your oeuvre. How do you think of that particular object and why does it recur? So uh, that object is one of many. If we're going to focus on that particular painting, you may also notice that at the top left corner is a flying turtle as well, I think. And then what it carries is also this sort of stylized uh, feminine form that has no feet, but it's kind of has these ribbons or loops. So it's self-rooted, it's self-contained. It's already a very uh, buoyant floating form, but then it's also atop a turtle or maybe part of the turtle. So it's got, got that sort of paradox, plus it's flying. So these sort of characters were coming from just thinking of the poltergeist or the erasure or the ghost or the presence of the feminine and how to activate that idea and create kind of a lexicon of forms that could be playful and witty, but also be about erasure or the monstrosity within within the feminine as well. So these are these are the these are the different sort of ideas that have populated those forms and those forms have come about by by my interest in in these themes and reading you know all sorts of different types of literary themes or poetic themes as well as looking at at the representation of the female or its lack of representation over time so then i think in that particular griffin could there's a term called chalava which is a very local Punjabi phrase for, uh, yeah, for a farm animal or a that, that sort of urbanization of the farmlands. And at that time, that change is happening, that there were stories that are about, you know, these spaces getting haunted by small animals that are like the chalavas that you can't really identify them. They're fleeting. But then I, my grandmother used to call me a chalava because I would probably not visit her enough or I would be in and out so fast that she would always be like you're just like a chalava so you know so so equating the griffin to the chalava and then uh, opening up that space where it I can then bring the feminine as well so 
that's all that's all of that's happening i think in that particular work even in its uh, title the, it's i think part of a series called hood's red rider so that's the red riding hood there's another one called then and now now is in initials of now national organization of women so that that's sort of like the female kind of agency in all in that particular series is you know it's citing like the western fairy tales which are also part of my childhood story books in pakistan but then again like many children's stories of that generation they have deeply entrenched gender bias as well so how do you upend that very passive depiction of women and then how do you play with across age across culture across sort of time because manuscript painting is coming out of book illustration as well so that's why i was like okay and me like uh, play with that idea that it is coming from from a history of illustrations and bookmaking lots of flying things in lots of your paintings People, planes, angelic figures, um, anything you can stick wings onto, you stick wings onto them. <laughs> well, yeah, or no wings, but still sort of things are yes. afloat. <laughs> yes, even marks, handsy marks on paper or support fly away. Yeah, and I think, you know, like when you were talking about like, you know, this creating world or creating a system, I think... What I was doing in that particular time was really trying to create my own engagement with a larger genre, like that genre, which sort of loosely say we're talking about Central South Asian manuscript language. So then if I am almost playing with another language on top of it, those two different surfaces are going to function almost like intention, like almost like a graffiti gesture on top of the very precise labored painting that I have first created. And then the loose sort of gesture that's all about erasure that sits atop and that also erases the labor that's happened under. So what is that tension? And I think that that's where two different types of systems start to collide. And I was, I was really seeking that that moment or that tension in creating like a, a new space within the larger framework of what a manuscript should look like. That's really interesting to me because one of the constants in your work, maybe it's maybe not in the scroll as much, but I mean, really from kind of your, from the late nineties on, one of the constants in your work is layering. You do it a lot and you do it across media. Images do or seem to sit on top of other images. Sometimes pieces of support, you know, paper or, or tracing paper sit on top of other pieces of paper. Layering is there across 25, not, not in every work, but in many, many works across, you know, a quarter century. So I guess that move might be as simple as being a straightforward, even autobiography-informed metaphor for cultural overlay? Is it that simple, or are there other reasons that layering things on top of other things is so important within your toolkit? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely, I'm playing with all of that, as you said, but I think different paintings have had different function. So when there's another work that I did where the image at the center is of lovers on horseback, it's a very kind of a road template. It's there often in many paintings within the, within the Indian miniature. And so when I uh, was referencing those stock characters, my kind of changing them or disrupting it with like this large red sort of burst-like gesture where I actually took a ink on a as a monotype and then printed that directly, put that directly under the etching press. And, and I didn't know how the painting would come out because I had already sort of first painted it and then I, I was almost defacing it. But I wasn't even privy to how, you know, what the process would happen till it came out. So that destabilizing is almost like destabilizing the motive of heterosexual love. So that itself is a very prevalent trope in traditional miniature. So the actual act itself is not just about creating these layers that are moving in a linear manner over time. 
they are also disrupting other foundational characteristics of the tropes as well. That work, I am, of course, not remembering the name, but I will come back to that. But that, that, that is that. Then there are, other, there are other ways in which the layering, you know, is uh, leads into the drawing having the facility or the adaptability within itself as a medium. So when I think of drawing as a libretto, then I imagine it as a very elastic form. And then I can work with the watercolor and ink in a different manner. And as I develop those, the seriality in that process, I can develop it into film as well. So that is happening from that same point of departure, but it, it is based on a layering, but a layering of a different nature, right? Whether it's like the different layers of the drawings are being scanned at high resolution, and then I keep developing the drawing further and keep scanning its different traces. But then, you know, and then that whole armature comes alive very differently when you write code or when you imagine the choreographed spaces through code writing and particle systems, and you can develop an animated work. Yeah, but its foundation is still that process of drawing. There's a there's a book Meyer Shapiro wrote probably 40, 50 years ago now called The Unity of Picasso's Art in which Shapiro uses Picasso as a way of arguing that you can find core ideas, core practices, core artistic moves that no matter how varied an artist's work looks, you know, just simply being on the wall looks, that there's a unity to those approaches. And that's, and when I look through your oeuvre, that's where I find it. I mean, there are lots of, I think, other key things that run across the oeuvre a bit, but layering is such a flexible metaphor and physical practice that, that I think it really comes forward in the work. Yeah, I appreciate your pointing that out because, um, of course, you know, my work for many people may, they struggle, like, oh, it looks very different at different times or depending on your their familiarity or lack of it or if they're, even in this particular show that's opening at the MFA Houston, it's only the early works. Up to 2003 or so, yeah. Yeah, it ends at 2002, three, there are a few works from there that are included, but then there's another whole 20 years of work as well. So this for me is really a, a very important way of being in the world that I'm functioning in a very cyclical manner. That's how points of reference and the movement in time and space and the interests in things is cyclical. It's never just all linear. And that in that practice, I think I, I often see my own work as an art historian, like I can look at it and I can like revisit it. Or I can uh, revisit some of the themes that were happening there, but then find ways of connecting with it now. And or my own curiosity in whether my painting could exist as a sculpture. And that's that's literally how I, I ended up finishing and creating a sculpture, a bronze sculpture was my curiosity that the painting itself was sculptural and nobody was seeing it as such. So all I had to do was make it into a sculpture. And then I wanted to see what type of response it would elicit. And that, again, is the fluid foundation of drawing in there, because I took the sketch, and then I developed it further. And as I was developing it further, I had to imagine it from all sides. And so I had to work with live models. And then that the idea which existed in a work that I did 20 years ago, suddenly existed as a sculptural form in space, but it had a very different response. And, and it was a very different language being used about my work. That you're speaking about affinities between sculpture and painting is appropriate because my next, or is usefully transitional, I should say, because my next question um, has Matisse within it. <laughs> we mentioned a few minutes ago that you have across your career, migrated moves, symbols, forms, whatever, you know, however you want to call them, across individual works. There is a rich history of that in European modernism, for example. So it's, it's, it's not geographically, a geographically specific practice. Um, I think 
as a Matisse nerd, I think of Matisse and how favored studio objects like a samovar recur and painting after painting, you know, sticking with him as an example, Matisse is using a samovar, not because he cares what a samovar was or is or what it did or what came out of it and so on. It's because it offered formal possibility because over time it showed how his ways of making marks on a support on canvas changed. So take a work of yours like Flutter, a drawing slash painting from 2009, which features these two kind of chrysanthemummy, if you will, forms um, painted in red, white, blue, and maybe a little bit of black. And and this the, these two shapes, forms, kind of re will recur in your work for several years thereafter. Are you instigating a form like that and then bringing it back in the work again and again because you're interested in its shape, in how you can migrate it to a different medium, how it works in a video as opposed to on paper, or for much different conceptual reasons? So like, you know, the, the right there, it's like a broken forearm at times, or it's got a clenched hand. But for me, it's all, these were iterations of terror or fear or struggle, even might or control, all these things. And then I think specifically the trope being rendered in red, white, blue came about when I was creating the animated works, The Last Post and Parallax as well, because there we're talking about movement, right? Movement in time and space and literal movement through animation. So, so I was using this trope almost like as a metaphor for that kind of political moment that's in flux. So in, in The Last Post, it is really, you know, as the title itself refers, it's the bugle call. So it's commemorating like soldiers who have died in war, but it also signals a call for the end of the day. So it's the, it's also closure or it's this moment in time. But of course, it's uh, much deeper to that. It, it, it was the, it's the East India Company's engagement with China, with the opium wars, so this imperial sort of space or the imperial rooms that are in the Mughal Empire, which have ruled South Asia, but then they were, you know, they were there was also these, these opium wars being conducted from that space. So within the manuscript tradition is the company school. The company school of painting comes, uses a certain type of iconography where it's reflective of the dying patronage and the new patrons as being the English. So the miniature takes on a very different iteration. It starts catering to the demands of the British interest in the local vernacular. And it often, so I was playing with that as well, because such migration has an effect on the forms of the language within the tradition as well. But then later, I think I use it as these kind of the flutter is where you're trying to fly, but you can't take off. So that sort of tension between being afloat and yet not able to depart. So then I thought in the movement itself, you know, because it's the arms are all together, but they're not tied to the body. So they, they are like a cluster of different arms. And in their movement, they have like a fluttering effect, but they are disconnected to the body. And then I think I, I was playing on the hyphenated identities um, that America affords as being Asian American can be, you know. That itself is a very kind of, it can encompass, it encompasses South, a South Asians, West Asians, Arab Americans, whatever, like Cambodian Americans there. It's it's all the what it means in that hyphenated space where you are not really part of the main body, but you're kind of disconnected, but yet part in, exist in these hyphenated states. So that's that, that same motif in conversation with the feminine bodily form. And as a drawing, I then basically projected it into space when I was doing a residency at the Doris Duke Foundation in Honolulu, Hawaii. And then as light, it just falls onto the landscape there. And they have a gorgeous, very manicured land landscape. So the light kind of sits very deeply into those trees and on some architecture. And the form becomes almost like a homage 
to Doris Duke herself. And then Doris Duke herself is a very interesting case study that encompasses a lot of, you know, ideas around patronage and a feminine. She was very interested in cultures elsewhere. So this this whole Orientalist trope that is there prevalent in the 1930s in terms of the interest in the other. So that kind of fleeting image is still fluttering, but is not necessarily able to take off, but it's existing on the trees itself. So that, yeah, so you're right. The iconographies are functioning simultaneously on paper as ink, but then I'm also interested in pushing their boundaries by engaging, drawing with different mediums. It's the, the, the flutter form, if you will, is also in manicured lawns, which is a very large scale, doing my math really quick, like nine foot high, eight foot high, drawing from 2009, in which that red, white, and blue flutter form sits on a background that recalls mountains and in which there is greenery. Yes. And there, and there, I think in the center is also these devices, sort of, uh, they were post-war devices of collecting and emitting sound. So then I was playing with this idea of sound and, and this sort of malaise, you know, in terms of like, and, 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 and that's a time when I, was, I had actually have done a film uh, called Bending the Barrels, which I shot in Aptabad in 2009. And this was done, I don't know, a few months later, there was this whole thing about Osama bin Laden in, in Aptabad. And I worked with the Pakistani army's school of music. So I was basically right there a few months before, not aware of anything. But so when I was, I was interested in exploring these colonial trappings or this lineage of colonial music that still exists within the army school and you know and then the what what in that particular film i am engaging with the musicians themselves but it's mostly brass band and so we were pushing them to sing songs that that were also coming from bollywood so at the at towards the end you know they they were able they were singing these uh, love ballads which would be a very different representation of the patriotic songs. But artist to artist, one-on-one, I was able to find that rupture in the kind of formal communication and got the army men singing love ballads from, again, from across, from Bollywood, which itself is a, is another political layer right there. It is. It is a very funny work, and there's a one-minute Vimeo excerpt of it that you've made available. Um, in addition to linking to your website, we will drop that onto the show page at manpodcast.com. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so this is a, this, what we're talking about in 2009, so last post, it's 2010, and that I made for, I think, a, a project in Shanghai. So I had reached out to... Duyan, the composer I had met around that time, who's born in Shanghai and lives in New York. And we wanted to look at the relationship of, of South Asia and through East India companies' history into China. You know, so it's literally a year later. But this interest in these histories of trade and migrations and colonial occupations and how objects and bodies move historically, right? How they shift and oscillate with every generation. Like, how do we think in terms of narrative, in terms of history, how history is determined, who is responsible for those accounts? And, you know, all history is then about redaction. So coming to those histories with the freedom as visual artists, as collaborators, we were interested in like not rewriting that history, but taking a different point of view in creating a collaborative work, which was looking looking at that particular moment in time of the Opium Wars. So the last post comes about, again, in my interest in working with a composer, working in film, but keeping my engagement with drawing very present in the, in the work itself, but actually creating the work for a project in Shanghai. You know, we were talking about systems a moment ago, and... I've noticed that when interviewers ask you about 
artist contemporaries of yours in whose work you are interested, two artists come up a lot, Matthew Ritchie and Julie Maratu. We were just talking about manicured lawns. I think I can find some Ritchie and his interest in biological systems within manicured lawns. So you've known, you, you told me before we started taping that you've known Julie Maratu, who's been on the show three times. We'll have links to that in the show page. That You've known her since 1994. And I'm sure she's, her, her influence is there in the work before 2011, but it sure seems to me like some of her interests come flying into the work in, in 2011. There are works like Confrontation or Explosion of the Company Man that seem to be born from the same active, layered, frenzied mark-making that's been in Julie's work since the beginning of her practice. If it's possible, and it may not be, is it possible for you to kind of think back over kind of maybe the last 20 or 30 years and think about what you think you might have gotten from her and her oeuvre? Meeting Julie in the way we met in 94, when I think uh, it was one of my many jobs at, as a student at, at RISD was to also meet with artists, meet with students that were interested in the school. So I think when I'm, I picked Julie up and she came to look at RISD, and I think at the end of the day, I convinced her to come to, to RISD, though, I, though she had like scholarship elsewhere as well. So the nature of that relationship started with a lot of sympathy for each other, a lot of like interest in our situations and in in fostering a space between artists and women. And that flourishes. I, I think I moved to Houston to do the core program. And I were telling Julie that, you know, that she should also apply. And Julie comes there a year later. Then in 99, I curated Julie's first exhibition at Exit Art. So, you know, in that respect, there's a deep history of support and just kind of developing one's friends and community. And and of course, I think in terms of like things that that are going to come in and out of each other's work is all, all, all happening, but not consciously. I think in terms of uh, our practices, they're very, very different. I was never really creating anything on canvas. And then I was really very much wanting to develop a space where a non-Western aspect of painting, the traditions that are outside of the Western canon, could intellectually exist simultaneously. What that space meant was my looking very radically into the manuscript traditions and how I could bring them in conversation with contemporary art practices. And as I, as we were talking earlier, like this strategy of layering or the strategy of taking the drawing in conversation with sculpture or in conversation with performance or with poets or with writers or with composers or with musicians, this agitation or disruption allows me to then bring that space back into the into the paintings even if they're small drawings on paper that agitation starts entering and that's where maybe things like the the last post or things where you are seeing like you know a, a lot of activity happen on the surface of the work it's coming from these ventures out into the world and then coming back into the space of the drawing, into the intimate, so the broader and the intimate. So that broadness and then it's the macro and the micro, that sort of dismantling is happening through that lived experience and back into the space of the small drawing. And I think over there, you can see that that type of disruption that Julie's work also embraces. There's, you know, this is probably a little bit simplistic, but both of you are particularly interested in using ink, which is not maybe the most common contemporary material, but you guys could not use it in diff more different ways. So for Julie, it's a material with which to be precise, very specific mark making or, or, or really linear mark making. And in your work, 
you're very often more interested in the materiality of ink, how it flows and drips and moves and pools. I don't want to suggest you all have ever sat around over a martini and talked about ink, but I don't know if I were writing maybe a uh, graduate thesis, that might be something that would interest me. <laughs> I, I think the spirit in the spirit of the work, like our works would be are so, so different. But oh, the totally. ethos, I think, is so because I think when, say, post 9-11, right, what's happening in America where it's becoming a little, it's the conversation sort of went inward. It was all about defining like what America was and everything else was the other. So this separation that starts to happen, that sentiment, in my experience of the early 90s, wasn't present in that manner. It gets incredibly crystallized and hardened. So there's a lack of a discourse and a dialogue. So then like the politics, the political moment rises to the surface. And I think Julie's work from then onwards is also much more engaged in what's happening elsewhere in the world. In that same manner, you know, even if I was, we were talking about my interest in the monsters. So suddenly there's a whole history of monsters within the manuscript tradition. Right. And they over there, they are they may be the, it may be as literal as the dragon being drawn in the painting. But if you if you understand the Sufi traditions, that dragon represents the psychological fear. It's not literal. It's not literally somebody slaying the dragon. It's like it's your mind existing outside of the body. And so my interest in the feminine and the monstrous and then it takes on additional layers of meaning with the sort of whole discussion of Muslims and the kind of imagined fear of the other that gets incredibly hostile post 9-11 in one's own experience of like every time you you know traveled in and out of the US it was a it was a nightmare. So that I think that that broader ethos of the work is how Julie plays with the politics in her work and how some of my iconographies take on different resonance because of the po politics uh, post 9-11. I think there I feel, feel a, a different type of a connection with her as an artist. Speaking of monsters, we could do a whole program on your use of horns in your work, including on self-portraits within your work, but we'll leave that alone for the moment. I just, it, it just <laughs> amuses me. I, I find it a fun thing to find. I read an interview you did a year or so ago with Anna McNay for Studio International. We'll link to it from the show page. And in that interview, you said, quote, I usually create a painting as a poem where its formal dynamics intersect with emotional and social consciousness. Why do you think of that as a poetry practice? Or maybe to put it a better way, why is it important that you find that within poetry? Because I, I read so much poetry all the time, and it's been a constant in my space of inspiration. So, you know, even like, for example, other than the poets we mentioned earlier, Faz Ahmed Faz or Ghalib or Iqbal, then, you know, I'm, I'm talking with Slava, Simborska, like I, I can draw connections between her work or Polish poets, as well as like Urdu poetry in terms of this, sometimes the symbols taking on this idea of Arcadia or how revolutionary poetry infuses political, local kind of consciousness at that time in localities that are in different geographical and time spaces, but there's a timelessness in that whole language itself. Even current younger poets like Salmaz Sharif, incredible, very uh, young Irani, I think, American poet. You know, so, so even like there's Dennis Smith, there are, uh, of course, Langston Hughes I have worked with, even Derek Walcott, looking at Derek Walcott, sort of the idea of the epic poem, but Omero's is a very visual idea. Like it, it has a, it's got a very powerful visual narrative happening in the work. So this interest with text has been a constant thing because the manuscript tradition itself is very deeply connected to language, to writing. Most of the time we don't see it because the 
paintings have been cut out from the books. And usually you will just see the framed painting if it's up in in your in 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 any you know if you go and see some manuscript works at the Met, you miss the emphasis will be on the image, but they have always been in conversation and part of a whole history of language of the use of writing. So for me, that that is also very this conversation between yeah writing and and language of painting, not necessarily painting as an illustration of the poem, but as as independent entities. So. That's how I, when I create a painting, I am, I'm interested in, in its singularity. I'm not that interested in just repeating that painting to, you know, as a theme for a whole show, but more as does each painting seen as a very independent entity. And, and the closest that I can create a parallel to is how a poem functions for me. Two more things. We talked a little bit about scale earlier and how early in your career, you know, you, you start out with the scroll, which is about 13 inches tall, if you will, you know, 13 inches vertically. And as your career has gone on, you have made works, you know, that hang in office building atrium size that fill Times Square. You have gone from an extremely modest scale to being skilled at working at the most extreme scales. What helped you do that? Is that formal? Is that conceptual? Yes, it is. But I will also tell you like a very simple thing. I think maybe years ago in my first sort of public lecture or something of that nature, right? So we have like those old 35 mm slides and and then, you know, sharing your work at a very large projected manner. Just imagine as a as something like that, like maybe the first few times that one would have been doing that. And here you are talking about your work, which is so small, and then to an audience who's looking at it at like 20 foot high. And that, I think, you know, that might be just a tiny little thing, but I think those things are very meaningful. Because then you also are becoming aware that, you know, there is something inherent in the work that it can scale up and does not fall apart. And I, I, I was very interested in reading the historical works in that manner, too. So I would always often do exercises where I would remove all the figurative data and then see what the relationship between form and colors, if that would continue to speak for itself or would it remain intelligent conversations with each other if I shifted the scale or was it just the narrative that usually the accompanying text would always focus on obsess over would always be the narrative happening in the in the particular historical painting so I would I would be like oh let's get rid of the narrative let's remove it so what is the armature there so these are these these are things that you know that I was doing early like even in my undergrad so even the scroll since we talked about it, there is another eight foot piece that I made that that led to the scroll. So the scroll demanded a very different, it demanded from my mind and my body a very different exercise, right? It, it's a small, intense work that took over a year and a half to make with sometimes 14 hours daily. There was no way but to really sort of just work within that prescribed space with very detailed gestures and use, using a micro, magnifying glass. But to arrive there with all the ideas and the layout and the palette and all the images, I had to first develop all of that elsewhere. So I had done large paintings in collage and other mediums. And then that, then that allowed me to create this very detailed work in that fashion. And I think that shift in scale and engagement with the body sustains me from the early 90s onwards, because I was doing simultaneously large murals, whether, you know, the early ones were at the Yorba Buena, but throughout at the drawing center at other places, they would shift from 10, 10, 15 feet to sometimes 70 feet. Unfortunately, was not smart enough to have like, done them on canvas or board right so they were painted <laughs> and then at that time like some of those images are also so 
so poor. Like those 35 mm images, if you didn't take them, if they weren't taken well at the time, then there's not much you can get out of them now. I, I have heard a similar lament <laughs> from so many artists over the years we've done this show. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, yeah. So, unfortunately, so much of that, so much of that time and energy and that it ate up all of that. I, I was doing that practice for a long time because it allowed me to travel across the country and to work with, you know, with smaller museums, often academic museums where you would do a where one could do a residency and then be part of that environment for a few weeks and in that process create like a temporary large-scale mural that lasted whatever for a few weeks or a few months. So that happens throughout 95 till at least five, six years. I would like to wrap up by asking about some recent work, a series of portraits you began in, I think, late 2018 and continued into at least 2019. And they are mostly portraits of women such as Malala Yousafzai, the Nobel Prize winner, Adrienne Rich, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Angela Davis. There are some commonalities across some of them, but not all of them. For example, the pictures of the Americans especially use red, white, and blue. But portraiture and such direct representation of specific individuals, so far as I know, was new to your practice in 2018 and 19. Why portraits? Why did you want to represent leaders of the now? Those you're probably referring to a few which are on the website. And they do feel as if, you know, it's a new thing. But I think portraiture also runs very throughout my practice. There have been portraits that are embedded within the very detailed spaces of the small drawings so if you if you look through them they are there's always been a kind of portrait of individuals whether they were other artists i was working with or people whose um, philosophies i identified with so it was a gesture of creating an alliance so there's Sharmila desai also so that history has always been present but then in the recent works, I think it's part of a, a film I was making where I was really interested in uh, just playing with this, with the dimension of the face and face and with this use of, of ink where you could capture like a shifting kind of cartography that's unraveling within the space, within the face itself. There are other, uh, other writers in that a series like Parveen Shakir, Ismat Chuktai, Fahmida Riaz. There are other other poets as well, alongside Adrian Rich as well. And and again, Adrian Rich, you know, of course I was interested in her work, but she also did translations of Ghalib that I don't think many American people may necessarily know of that project where she is writing Ghazals. And she is actually creating translations in her own manner, in her style. So I was focusing on those departures in her work as well. So I, th I think like the sort of a loose framework here again is like femininity and the tension between women and power. And I think in each cases, each of the portraits here that you listed of the female, there is what I was interested in is capturing that tension between what they represent and and inevitably there is a broader engagement with power whether the power being projected on them or the power that is being perceived in that tension so that how to kind of find femininity in that space so that's where some of this work is I think they are they are studies of sorts and then they have led to other larger drawings again there's one where it's this uh, face the female face that comes about in the upside down sort of representation of africa and that work is also it looks at the portrait but then it's you know it's not just the portrait portrait becomes literally the flipped continent it's also octavia butler's whole one particular work it's called kindred so it's looking at that it's also looking at for me like this focus on the feminine was really a one way of like countering other things that i was interested in the things that 
deal with migration or with things that are extractive in nature. So if what is the redemptive aspect of the feminine there, if we're thinking of the extractive nature in terms of like histories of East India Company, histories of wealth that are still tied to that or extractive in the sense of extraction as in war, extraction as in climate, but something that is the counter to the extractive. And for me, that's positioning the feminine as the abundant. So that theme has been in the work from early years as well. Yeah. And of course, the self-portraits that are in the work as well, too. These are, yeah, no, I had thought of these as being different because they are, I don't know, maybe one way to think of them is portraiture heads, <laughs> you know, a kind of the sculptural tradition. Only they're painted. Yeah, I, I think, yes, yes. Yeah, there is uh, there is definitely, you're actually quite right because I, it was a, also, a, at that time I was sketching another sculpture that was going to engage with, with the bust, with the, with the head and multiple heads simultaneously. Excellent. Shazia Sikander, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate being part of your series here. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.